the evolution of the Internet has changed the way intelligence really works. The, the reality is that now for, for governments who are engaging in foreign policy, the Internet is, is a battleground. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington, D.C. today, and I'm joined on the phone by Jake Williams and Andre Soldatov. Jake is the founder and president of Rendition InfoSec, a leading information security firm. Previously, he worked on computer network operations for the National Security Agency. Andre is an investigative journalist focusing on Russian security services and co-founder of Agentura.ru, a Russian information hub on intelligence agencies. He's also the co-author of The Red Web, The Kremlin's War on the Internet. And joining me here in the studio is Elias Grohl, a staff writer at Foreign Policy covering cyberspace and its conflicts and controversies. ER fans, we love hearing from you. So if you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. We originally recorded this podcast to talk about alleged Russian use of Kaspersky software to hack an NSA contractor. Um, since we've recorded, additional details have come to light that Israeli hackers penetrated the computer systems of Kaspersky Labs and observed Russian government hackers using company software to search for national security agency hacking tools. They then shared the material with the U.S. government. Elias, can you talk about what happened and what these new details are? So according to the New York Times, uh, Israeli intelligence hacked into the computer systems of Kaspersky Labs, burrowing deep into their systems in their Moscow headquarters. And as a result of that operation, they were able to observe Russian government hackers searching Kaspersky Labs systems around the world for the keywords of NSA tools to break into computer systems. Now, what they found eventually was NSA software sitting on the personal computer of an NSA contractor, and they then used Kaspersky Lab systems in some unspecified way, we don't know exactly how, uh, to steal that information. That information included some of the most sensitive material uh, belonging to the NSA, tools that the NSA uses to break into foreign computer systems. So this week it came out that an NSA contractor using Kaspersky software was hacked by the Russians. Elias, can you tell us what happened and more broadly address Kaspersky Labs' evolution as a company over the past few years? Four or five years ago, Kaspersky Lab was uh, a leading internet security firm that was trying to break into the global market. And, and based in Moscow. Based in Moscow, Russian cybersecurity firm led by a very charismatic individual by the name of uh, Eugene Kaspersky that basically does antivirus work. It's a, a Russian equivalent of, say, a Symantec. And uh, their product is generally very well regarded. They have a team of very expert researchers. And they've been trying to expand their global footprint. And and four or five years ago, uh, before relations between the United States and Russia kind of took a nosedive, uh, Kaspersky was embraced by uh, a lot of U.S. consumers and by parts of the U.S. government. And after this chill in relations between the United States and Russia, uh, Kaspersky Labs as a company has, become, has come under intense scrutiny for its links to the Kremlin. Uh, Kaspersky Labs employs several individuals with uh, experience in the Russian security services, uh, organizations such as the FSB, the successor organization to the KGB. And U.S. intelligence officials look at Kaspersky Labs as a huge national security threat today. And when you ask American intelligence officials, well, what do you actually base this assessment on? Do you have any reason to say, you know, this is how 
the Russian government uses Kaspersky in order to carry out intelligence operations or intelligence gathering. They w- wouldn't really say, but the the but the reading between the lines, it was, we are really worried about this piece of software and this company, but we don't have any concrete evidence to indicate that the company has actually been used by Kremlin security services to carry out uh, intelligence operations or operations or intelligence gathering. Now we have this extremely explosive story from the Wall Street Journal, uh, which claims that hackers working on behalf of the Russian government stole uh, technical details from the National Security Agency, somehow using Kaspersky Lab software from the personal computer of an NSA contractor. This, uh, the information that was stolen includes uh, technical data about how uh, the National Security Agencies penetrates foreign computer networks. That is some of the most sensitive work that the NSA does. But this took place, what's so fascinating for me is that the events in the article took place, I believe, in 2015. And this just came out now, which immediately sort of raises, not, not red flags that it's untrue, but the timing of the disclosure. Um, I mean, Jake, as someone, you know, what... Can you talk about what Elias is saying, that that intelligence officials were sort of describing concerns but not specific? How concerned were intelligence agencies going back three, four, five years about the company and about the use of the software? How much of this is really new? I can't necessarily speak to anything that happened, you know, obviously while I was uh, was at the agency. Uh, But, uh, you know, I'll I'll say that uh, a lot of companies, and certainly the Department of Defense, uh, as well as a number of other U.S. companies, are concerned about foreign-owned and controlled interests. Uh, and Kaspersky certainly falls there. Um, you know, when we talk about the uh, the theft of, or the theft, the uh, <clears throat> uh, basically the compromise of those uh, classified documents on the contractor's machine, uh, I think it is important to keep in context that uh, Kaspersky uh, has signatures. You know, a lot of this was was indeed code. The man was identified as a developer. I think it's worth keeping in uh, you know keeping in context that Kaspersky is fundamentally an antivirus company. Uh, and antivirus companies do share samples in, in many cases with other researchers. Uh, and, you know, whether that's uh, government researchers or Virus Total or uh, other tech, uh, tech firms. And, you know, of course, if this man's a developer, it's likely that they've got some signatures for, for some code uh, that they may have discovered, uh, discovered on his machine. So, Jake. Let me, let, me, let me jump in here and ask you a quick question here. And, and hopefully, I want to ask you to explain a little bit more to the non-technical audience out there what the intelligence potential is of a piece of software like antivirus. Coming from a perspective of, you know, uh, trying to gather information, like what can you do with antivirus software and why is Kaspersky something that the U.S. government is so worried about as a result? Can you sort of tease that out a little bit? Oh, sure, definitely. You know, we talk about information security, right? For, for the lay people, we, we, use a, uh, <clears throat> we use a topic uh, called CIA or a mnemonic called CIA, which stands for Confidentiality, Integrity, and Availability. Those are really the three pillars of, of keeping a, a system secure, is, is protecting all three of those. And an antivirus, a uh, piece of antivirus software, has complete control over all three of those. Right? They can violate the confidentiality of the data, uh, in most cases, as part of legitimate scanning. Uh, your antivirus may, and you probably agreed to this in the end-user license agreement, your antivirus will send samples to the cloud, right? Uh, that, that helps protect you. Uh, it helps protect other consumers by uh, allowing them to analyze uh, some of this data off, uh, basically off of your machine. Uh, 
but uh, again, it has access, once you install it, it has access to every file on, on your machine. Uh, the question here isn't whether or not Kaspersky or, or any other antivirus, for that matter, has that specific capability uh, to violate the confidentiality of any of those uh, documents or any code that you happen to have on your machine. Uh, it's not a question of do they have the potential to. They absolutely do. Every one of them does. Uh, at this point, really, it's just a question of did Kaspersky do something, uh, do something inappropriate uh, with, those, uh, with those permissions. Now, um, Andre, you talk about Kaspersky Labs in your book and about meeting with Kaspersky. What, I mean, what do you make of both the suspicions of the company and, and also of these more recent reports of the hacking? Uh, well, I think, okay, uh, so I think that the biggest problem we are facing here is um, the problem of trust, actually, because you're absolutely right. Five years ago, and uh, we didn't have this kind of problem, so a lot of things changed. And uh, I think the biggest problem with Kaspersky is that he is uh, not very transparent about his relationship with the Russian security services. His line of defense for all these years has been to pretend that uh, we are talking only about a law enforcement agency, nothing else. So he tries to say that, look, we are talking only about some cooperation in uh, investigating criminal, uh, some criminal acts. And, of course, the FSB is much bigger and the first place is uh, counterintelligence and intelligence agency. And given the fact that it became so exposed uh, during the U.S. election scandal, of course, we have all these questions about the, the nature of this relationship. And the problem is that the landscape for companies like uh, Kaspersky Company in Moscow also changed over the last, uh, say, four years, especially after 2014. And now the Kremlin became much more demanding, and uh, now it's time for companies to have the state uh, in many cases. That's why it's raised so many questions. And um, even the legislation we have in the country for cybersecurity companies are extremely, I would say, intrusive. And uh, it gives a lot of opportunities for uh, the Russian secret services to have access to almost anything which is going on in these companies. For example, if you do anything in encryption, uh, you need to get a license from the FSB. And sometimes uh, the requirements of this license is to have FSB officers physically present in your offices. The problem is that Kaspersky has uh, refused to talk about these things openly. So if he wants to regain the trust of his customers, uh, especially internationally, he needs to talk about these things. He needs to answer these questions. And it's still, well, I think it's not his line, and he still pretends that it's all about law enforcement. Let me ask a question relating to that. I mean, obviously, Kaspersky wants to run a global company. It is not in his interest to have these doubts about him. What I mean, but he's also between a rock and a hard place. He is based in Moscow, but he also wants the global market. What are his options? What could he theoretically do? Uh, is he in a position to disclose more? Is there any way to run a global antivirus business from Moscow, or is that inherently not going to work? Well, unfortunately, it's, uh, it's getting even worse for him, especially after the last, after actually uh, what happened last December. And last December, uh, one of his top people, a guy who ran his uh, cyber crimes department, actually contacted the person for the FSB in his company, got arrested 
and sent to jail, along with his main contact with the FSB. So now we had some people sent to jail, and one of them is a Kaspersky guy. And it's a very tricky situation for Kaspersky because, well, officially the FSB didn't provide any reason for their arrest, but unofficially the idea is that Kaspersky guy provided some, or helped to provide some information to the Americans, which actually is the greatest problem now for the Soviet community in Russia because everybody understands that as a very strong message from the government to a cyber security community, including Kaspersky Lab, uh, to be very cautious in all international contacts, which is absolutely unacceptable if you're trying to run a global company. Yeah, exactly. So you cannot run a global company if you should be cautious about your global con- uh, contacts. And uh, I think that actually right now Kaspersky is uh, in a kind of impossible situation. He's under big pressure in Moscow. He's uh, under immense pressure here. It's very tough for him, and uh, I think he didn't expect this to happen, which I think was quite strange, given that so many things happened, well, actually changes in Russia after the annexation of Crimea, how the climate changes, and uh, what happened uh, after 2016. Andre, you mentioned a really fascinating case there. The gentleman who you mentioned who was arrested, that's, as I understand it, that's Ruslan Stoyanov, uh, the veteran uh, cybersecurity investigator. He worked, as I recall it, for the Russian Interior Ministry before he went to work for Kaspersky. He had his own security company that was acquired by Kaspersky. He had rolled up one of the biggest financial fraud rings in Russia with the help of the FSB. He was arrested along with his contact at the FSB, Sergei Mikhailov, and a gentleman by the name of Dmitry Dokuchayev. Well, the FSB uh, theory is that uh, he did something in the, in the past, something uh, about 2012, maybe 2014, that maybe he has to pass on some information to the Americans, which, to be honest, nobody born in Moscow, and it looks like a pretext just to send this guy to jail and, and to send his house to jail. So the real theory is uh, that uh, after the election, uh, you know, the Kremlin became so nervous because they actually didn't expect this, this result, and they finally understood that maybe, well, the situation is a bit more, well, tense. So maybe it's time to try to, well, to shut down uh, all doors which might potentially lead to some leaks of information. So they just decided to put these guys to jail to prevent any kind of thing. Uh, so I think it was a kind of operation to prevent any potential leaks, rather than these people that sent to jail for what they actually did. That's interesting. Turning back to the U.S. for a second, Jake, it was a few, was it, or Elias, was it a few weeks ago that DHS came out and said that government agencies can no longer buy Kaspersky software? Is that, I think that was it a was few a few weeks, weeks ago. ago. Yeah, Jake, I mean, I know that you can't talk about your previous government work, but in terms of, are you surprised it took that long for that decision to be made? Well, after reading something uh, caught this morning from uh, Howell O'Neill, Patrick Howell O'Neill over at CyberScoop, uh, he's actually reporting that from multiple, multiple government sources uh, in the FBI and NSA uh, that Kaspersky in 2015 was trying to uh, make aggressive sales pitches to U.S. intelligence and law enforcement agencies uh, to sell their, their back-end data. Uh, so, again, if, if that really happened, in, and I'll assume that his sources are good. I've, I've never seen one of his stories retracted before. Um, if that's good, then, then I've, I'm amazed that it took that long. Uh, <laughs> it's the first half of 2015 they're trying to sell it. Uh, that's uh, and again, this is just breaking this morning. But uh, I, I'd be really surprised to see, uh, you know, that it took that long for DHS to make such a recommendation. 
Well, I guess it begs the question. I mean, what? I mean, Elias, what is the future for Kaspersky in the United States or in the global market? Is there any way for it to sort of regain any credibility? I think that a lot of consumers, at least outside the United States, uh, you know, who are savvy, will probably look at this and say that they don't trust the allegations that are being leveled against Kaspersky. I don't think I think that Kaspersky's business prospects in the United States are clearly uh, <laughs> on a downward trajectory. How are its um, consumer sales? I haven't seen any recent numbers on how its consumer sales are doing. Um, you know, it was trying to break into the into the government market here, um, and that obviously hasn't been going very well. And probably won't go very well <laughs> in the future. Exactly. And you now have major American retailers uh, banning uh, or removing Kaspersky software from its shelves. Um, so you'll probably see Kaspersky survive in some iteration of its of its current form, but its American business ambitions have clearly been undercut by this, to put it mildly. Now, I was going to say, I mean, I'll, I'll throw out here that, uh, you know, I work internationally, and uh, since this whole thing has, has broken uh, over the last, we'll say, uh, 90 days or so, we've seen uh, several companies that we work with internationally uh, that are also looking at uh, moving away from Kaspersky. Uh, some of them already have it in place. Uh, and are making transitions to other antivirus vendors based on, uh, you know, based on the allegations. And, and in most cases, that the people that are making the moves will tell you that they're not sure. Uh, they have a lot of doubts about. Uh, they have a lot of doubts about, you know, the claims that the U.S. levied. Uh, but they're simply not willing to take the risk. It's or, a, yeah, it's, it's a risk issue, I would think. Uh, Andre, what, what from the standpoint of Kaspersky, what do you think he's going to do now? I mean, he, he's going to try to somehow salvage. I mean, it's a company. It's a huge company. It, it has been globally successful. Well, what is the next move for him? Well, I think the problem now for Kaspersky is that he clearly he lacks a strategy because his strategy for many years was surprisingly to be, uh, even international, to be closely associated with, uh, with the Russian Secret Services. Look, he actually boasted that he uh, graduated from the KGB Institute. And for some time, in the, say, in the United States, it helped him. Remember that even after the annexation of Crimea, after all these uh, awful things, the reputation of the FSB in the United States was quite high, mostly because of this story about the Boston bombings, about the FSB sending several letters to FBI and CIA with some warnings about the bombings. And actually, there was a story when in 2015, uh, the chief of the FSB was invited to Washington to talk about counterterrorism cooperation, and the chief of FBI was not invited. So, of course, Kaspersky believes that this kind of thing could help him and could help him alone. And now, uh, this strategy completely, well, collapsed. So, I think the problem for him is just uh, where to find his place in this new well, circumstances, and uh, I don't see that he, he has any, any new ideas. It's funny how this how they tried to play it off at the Black Hat convention in Las Vegas that you were at, Elias, where they tried to sort of, you know, have the kitschy Soviet, we're going to have a party in a bar and make fun of it. And yet at the same time, very cautious about speaking to the press. Well, I mean, tell us about what you experienced. There yeah, I mean, this impression. was out. This was out in, in Vegas during the summer. This is the big um, info security conference, Black Hat, uh, where Kaspersky had a pretty small presence, but they rented out this very kitschy bar actually called Red Square in the Mandalay Bay and you know it sort of looks like a cross between a Berlin techno club and a uh, sort of Tsarist uh, palace and you know there they you know hosted hackers you know gave out free drinks and some hors d'oeuvres and but then when you go and talk to folks inside the company about okay well 
what do you make of these allegations that are being leveled against you uh, that, you know, you have a too close relationship with Russian intelligence services? They would say, oh, no, we, can't, we can't possibly talk about that. They're very, very defensive. So I, the company, in terms of its American position, you know, they've been in this, this, de- this defensive crouch in a way. And, you know, Eugene Kaspersky clearly wants that to lift. He's offered to come testify before Congress. That hearing keeps being rescheduled. It might actually still happen at some point. Rescheduled at his next... request or at congressional it's unclear. Request. It's unclear exactly right. what's happening there. Um, there may have been some visa problems. There may have, there are also a lot of other things going on in Congress. It's unclear exactly what's going on with that hearing. But it might still happen at some point next month. Um, he's offered to put his... Uh, the code of his software up for an independent review and audit, which, you know, I, I, I think a lot of independent technical experts don't make too much of that because, you know, a, a, a review of code is occurs at one point in time. And what really ha- what really matters is the actions of the human beings behind the code and what they do with the data that that is that is collected. But no matter, the company is is clearly trying to get out from under this shadow that uh, has been cast on the company as a result of these suspicions. And now at least some evidence that there has been uh, at least some use of the company by Kremlin intelligence uh, to carry out an operation. Well, let's turn back to the Wall Street Journal article for a second. You know, whenever I read an article like this about an incident that took place a couple years ago that suddenly comes out in a couple outlets, you know, I wonder, like, who is it that they're aiming at? And so I'm curious with this, is it Kaspersky they are trying to undermine or Admiral Rogers? What was the purpose of, of leaking these details? Now, I realize that's speculative, yeah, but I'm just curious. I mean, there's a lot of interesting threads to pull out here, right? One of them is the precarious position that Michael Rogers finds himself in, the director of the NSA. He was somebody who came into the agency with a mandate to crack down on leaks. He was the guy who was supposed to stop another Snowden. And instead, there have been multiple breaches at the NSA during his tenure. Uh, You have the contractor, Hal Rogers, who's been indicted in Maryland for taking home enormous amounts of information. You have the so-called shadow brokers leak that has... uh, published NSA source code on the internet. That we still don't know where it came from. We still from. don't know what they came right. from. Um, it's apparently not connected to this now third breach uh, of yet another NSA Well, for, uh, don't forget Edward Snowden. So, right, exactly. Yeah. So you have this incredible problem at the agency of just individuals, apparently, we don't know if that's what happened in this case, but probably that's what happened, of individuals just walking out with extremely sensitive information from the doors of the agency. And so the Obama administration wanted to fire Michael Rogers at the end of Obama's time in office, um, and he was able to hold on to his position. Why didn't they? That's a good question. That's not, not something that's really been conclusively answered. So, Jake, feel free to take a pass on this. I don't want to get too much into your government work. But, you know, from, from an outsider's perspective, we had Snowden, who was a contractor. We had um, the, co- the the hoarder contractor from uh, Maryland. And now this is a third report of a contractor. I- is there an issue with contractors at the NSA as opposed to employees itself? Because it, it looks, from an outsider's perce- perspective, it looks a little bit like that. Yeah, I don't necessarily think that uh, there's a, a problem specifically with contractors, you know, versus uh, versus government employees. Uh, I, I think what we keep seeing here, you know, a lot uh, from an outsider's perspective, people say, well, how could they leave with with information? You know, these, these are all people that have been vetted. Uh, they, you know, have extensive background checks. Uh, they're subjected to polygraph examinations, uh, you know, routinely the, you know, or periodically, and and so you know, these are people that that again, you know, are placed in positions of trust. Uh, you know, it's not exactly a prison. Uh, it's not like they're doing body cavity searches on the way out the door. <laughs> not yet. Well, well look, uh, you know, somebody actually asked me about that the other day. 
you know, do we need to start uh, maybe putting NYTSA-style scanners? Wow. Like, you know, Look, um, the reality is that uh, I, I would have left long ago had that been. I mean, if I walked up to the door and there was a TSA scanner there, uh, I simply would have turned around and left. Um, you know, I mean, no, no joke, right? It's, it's, again, not supposed to be an environment like that. And I, I think that, you know, we're already seeing a, a huge difficulty uh, that, that they're having attracting the right talent uh, for, for a huge number of reasons. Um, I hate, I would hate to see, uh, you know, I don't know what the issue is or what the uh, solution is for this, but I'd hate to see it go, uh, go a little bit too, uh, uh, too extreme on the security checks because I think that'll drive a huge number of, uh, huge number of people away. Well, what is the alternative? I mean, even looking at, uh, you know, reality winner, I forget how she took documents and paper and snuck them out yeah. in socks or pantyhose. Oh, no, she printed them and then mailed them. But how she got them out no, of the No, I think she ta- that came out in one of the – anyway, oh, she I digress, yes. But the point is it is very hard to stop people who want to from taking out information. So – and it appears that people are doing it repeatedly. So even beyond the Kaspersky concern, what, what does an agency do about that? Yeah, I, I certainly don't uh, don't have the answer. This is obviously something that we, you know, our conclusive answer. It's something we deal with a lot in, in you know, commercial services as well. You know, we talk about intellectual property and research and development. Uh, you can kill a company, you know, with hundreds of employees uh, by, by losing, you know, losing that one uh, that one trade secret. So uh, it's definitely something that we deal with a lot. Uh, I don't think anybody's got it uh, got it 100 uh, percent, you know, knocked out. But but at the end of the day, a lot of it comes down to a lot of it comes down to just trust. Right, uh, and and I, I guess at the end of the day, you know, Winner I think uh, came out. She stuck the uh, printed document in her pantyhose uh, to walk out the door with it. And again, that's going to work. Uh, you know, a hundred times out of a hundred, I don't think I've ever seen it be patted down. Uh, you know, leaving a leaving a secure facility, right? And, and certainly, if anybody was touching, you know, any of those areas, I'd, I'd be appalled. Uh, that said, I mean, obviously it works. So I, I sadly don't have the right to. You know, you can either go totalitarian, right, and, and really crack down on it, but I think you're going to lose a lot of great talent that way. Uh, or, uh, you know, you can uh, try to address the actual leaks of the source through, through some changes in culture. Well, I think she she's uh, tore a page from Sandy Berger's playbook, Clinton's national security advisor. I think that he smuggled out top secret documents by placing them in his sock as well. And then I think he hid them in a bush, and he was eventually convicted for that. So, um, you know, recycling old tricks here. Don't mess with librarians. It was the National <laughs> Archivist that uh, caught him. Exactly. <laughs> we digress. Exactly. So, Andre, I want to turn back to you for a second. You know, the, the Red Web, when it came out, it was timely. But it's also having, you know, it's, it's such a dynamic subject with the Russian electoral interference, with WikiLeaks. You know, if and when you update this book in another year, what what areas? What do you think are changing the most? Well, I think, to, my, to be honest, my biggest fear is, uh, say, these uh, information attacks, uh, all this hacking of uh, email accounts, and then uh, weaponizing of this kind of information could be combined with something real, something like an, an attack on a real critical infrastructure. Uh, it's never happened before, uh, and successfully, maybe the only example was in Ukraine. Uh, in December 2015, then uh, hackers attacked a power plant in Ukraine. Uh, and I think if, say, we come to a moment and these two things could be combined, so an attack and then a defining of public perception of that act, that would be something of the new stage. That would be something really dangerous. And, well, I hope it never happens, but uh, it could be, uh, it, it might be still an option, unfortunately. 
I've heard it said, Andre, that the the Russian security services regard Ukraine as a testing ground for some of their new technologies when it comes to comes to cyberspace. Do you do you agree with that assessment? And do you think that the trends we're seeing in Ukraine now of really aggressive attacks on infrastructure in peacetime, pioneered by Russian security services, do you think that that is going to be used on a wider scale by the Russian security services moving forward? Well, I think it's a bit more complicated because on the one hand, of course, a lot of things might be tested in Ukraine uh, and the assets are there. But at the same time, everybody in Moscow understands that there is a big difference between Ukraine and the United States. The United States, Because a real attack on critical infrastructure in the West would mean a real retaliation. And everybody understands, well, we have all this boosting about how impenetrable Russia is, but everybody got his message to Obama, uh, delivered last, I think it was summer, when she said that, look, we have something uh, on your infrastructure, just in case. And uh, I think everybody understands that uh, in terms of capabilities, the Western well, intelligence agencies like NSA, GTHQ, uh, they have a lot, and um, nobody could uh, actually possibly want to provoke a real retaliation on, let's say, uh, critical infrastructure of Russia. If I can give some, some sense of hope, maybe. <laughs> uh, but I hope that would, I'll say, prevent of, uh, from something really crazy. So that was the, that warning, I think, was the warning that Obama delivered to Putin in person uh, at the G20 meeting in China. Was that that was that that was that warning, I think. Um, and unclear if that actually made a difference in, in the in the Russian calculations. The Obama administration, you know, officials say that after that warning, Russian attacks on American computer systems dropped off a little bit. But um, it seems to have almost been so late in the game as to not really have made a difference. I'm curious, Andre, what you think the what you what do you think the what, what lessons has the Russian security service drawn from this operation that they've carried out against the American uh, election? What conclusions have they drawn from it? From my conversations with people uh, in Moscow, I would say that no, of course they, they understand the message and they got this message and they, they understand it's pretty serious, mostly because they are already uh, quite paranoid about the American capabilities and they believe in the idea that it's the internet because it's uh, actually an American creature. It means that uh, all communications in Russia are mostly built on American technologies like Cisco, which makes them by definition vulnerable for, say, American penetration. That's the theory which uh, has been promoted by the Russian Secret Services for at least 20 years. Uh, first time I heard this uh, back in 1995, as I said, Duma. So it's a very widespread idea. Uh, but they tried to do something. For example, last year, uh, there was a brief... Uh, moment of uh, rapprochement with China, and there was an idea, and the Kremlin with his idea for some time, that might be this uh, American technologies might be replaced with Chinese technologies. But actually, it's a dead end, because Huawei, the big Chinese company, immediately uh, offered their help, but the FSB got immediately suspicious, because, well, they know uh, that a lot of people in the West, they, they, they do not trust Huawei, but for exactly the same reason, that something might be planted in this equipment. But actually, this is a big problem when you have a country which cannot produce 
these kinds of technologies on the scale which you need for the country, I mean, and on the national level, it means well, where you can look for these technologies and be completely safe. It's, uh, it's a very tricky question now for, uh, for the Russian authorities. They're trying to do right now something with the so-called critical infrastructure in Russia, but it looks like a, I don't see any real strategy. I see some desperate moves, which means they got the message, they're trying to find something, and they are still very far from finding a real solution. I'm wondering, Jake, if we might reflect a little bit on how far the internet has come from its early days at this point. You know, it began as this hope that it would connect the world, it would make it a, it would make it a better place, and that this new era of communication would usher in perhaps a new era of politics that might have been naive. But we're now in a place where trust seems to be something that is a rare commodity on the internet. I'm wondering if you can sort of reflect a little bit on, you know, as an information security professional who's been active on the internet, you know, since some of its early days, where do you see the internet heading at this point? Is it going to be balkanized? Are we going to be headed into a, in a direction where everybody's just making their own servers because they don't trust uh, anybody's products anymore? Where do you think the future is headed? quite honest, uh, there's, there's not a lot of trust on the internet anymore, and, and there honestly shouldn't be. You know, when it comes down to it, the, the reality is that now for, for governments who are engaging in foreign policy, the internet is, is a battleground, right? Uh, both to control some of what gets referred to as cyber key terrain, whether that involves foreign government systems or industrial control systems or you name it. Uh, there's a goal to obviously control some of that uh, that you might need to use during uh, or might want to use to generate kinetic effects during wartime. Uh, on the separate, uh, you know, separate end, uh, obviously the intelligence gathering potential of cyber is, is absolutely huge. And, and, you know, when we talk about old school signals intelligence, right, and the, the evolution of the Internet has changed the way intelligence uh, really works. You know, you used to have this idea that in order for some, uh, think about like Morse code, for instance, right, somebody had to transmit it, uh, something on the air before you could receive it, before you could snatch it off of, off, off of the airwaves. And cyber changes that pretty dramatically, right? Um, you know, you're able to see the evolution of data that's not being transmitted outside of a uh, outside of a organization, outside of a government, uh, and and again, it's it's really creating opportunities for you know the spy agencies of the world to uh, to capitalize on that. So whether you work in government or private sector, uh, you know, obviously uh, you can easily become now. Granted, not not my mom, not my dad. You know, that they're not likely to become targets, but but certainly uh, organizations developing sensitive intellectual property, uh, telecommunications firms, uh, those that deal with industrial control systems, you name it. They, they've all become uh, targets, and and you know, unlike. In a civilian war where you would never go bomb a factory, uh, it's seen as perfectly legitimate by, by a large number of uh, countries uh, to go steal intellectual property from, uh, you know, from another country uh, or another country's corporation uh, to benefit their own nationalist agenda. Well, we've seen the future and it's depressing. <laughs> Thank you, Andre, Jake, Elias. Thanks for joining us. Please tune in for the next episode of ER and ER fans. Again, we do love hearing from you. So if you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.